Hey, 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 what's up, everybody? This is Lindsay Lerner, and you're listening to The Cost of the Status Quo. More people than ever are questioning why they do what they do and forging their own path. And on this show, I sit down with these entrepreneurs, trailblazers, creatives, and overall awesome beings to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the overall tips and tricks they're using so that the rest of us can do the same. This is The Cost of the Status Quo. Welcome to The Cost of the Status Quo. Today, we are here with Kelly Twitchell, an amazing human being who can be found outdoors, volunteering, and connecting with others who share her passion of making the world more inclusive for all people. Kelly is a San Diego native who started out as an occupational therapist and is now the founder and inventor of Access Tracks. Access Tracks is a portable pathway solution that instantly makes any outdoor area accessible for people who use mobility devices, parents with baby strollers, and vendors with heavy equipment. Today, Kelly is here to share a bit about her story and the tips, tricks, and habits that she's learned along the way. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. It would mean the world to me if you subscribed, rated, and reviewed this. Now, welcome Kelly. Thank you so much for making the time to be here. Thank you, Lindsay. Super happy to be here. Totally. So we always go all the way back because context is super important. What was it like growing up in San Diego? So I grew up with my parents in San Diego. I had an older brother, but he was 13 years older than me. So as you can imagine, by the time I was a toddler, he was annoyed by (laughs) anything to do with me. So he (laughs) was getting ready to go off to college and never got to really know him in that kind of a older brother level because I was too young. But years later, I ended up living with him a couple of times and we totally bonded and got to know each other. But That's awesome. Yeah. So it was, I felt like an only child growing up and I had lots of friends, um, just grew up here in East County, San Diego. And surprisingly, I wasn't a surfer or anything like that. I know that comes into play later on of like, what, you don't actually surf, (laughs) but yeah, I enjoyed hiking, riding my bike, um, climbing trees, that kind of thing when I was younger. I mean, I had a, a seemingly normal life when I was 12 years old that something happened to my family that would really shape who I became and really shaped my entire career and eventually what I did with Access Track. And what event transpired? To kind of set the scene, I am 12 years old. It's the summer, two weeks before starting high school. You can imagine the excitement and the nervousness. And I had a sleepover. I think it was like a I don't know, it must have been maybe a Sunday night, but it doesn't matter because it's the summer. And I woke up at 6 a.m. to my dad knocking on the bedroom door. I had two girlfriends stay over with me. So we all three kind of popped up in bed, sleepy eyed. And my dad looked extremely distraught. And he said, your mother has fallen and she can't get up and she can't talk. And I, of course, popped out of bed and ran down the long hallway to my parents' bedroom and into the bathroom there. And yep, sure enough, my mom was lying there on the bathroom floor on her back. She couldn't talk and she couldn't really move. She was trying to move. Like you could see her trying and her eyes were wide. And I don't know what it is, but I just clicked like I needed to help calm her, even though I'm 12 years old and I have no idea what just happened. So I'm laying there or sitting there next to her, cradling her head, stroking her hair and saying, it's going to be okay. And I did not know if it was going to be okay or not. Paramedics came up the stairs. Um, We were in a two-story home and they took her away to the hospital. And essentially what had happened is my mom in the middle of the night had had a massive stroke. 
with the particular type of stroke she had, they weren't able to administer the medication in time because more than three hours had passed since the initial incident where they couldn't just dissolve the clot in the brain or wherever it was that was blocking the brain's blood flow, right? So turns out she had a clot in her neck that had caused the blockage of the blood flow in a major artery. And so she had a massive stroke. She was paralyzed on the left side of her body. She was living at the hospital for months and months. And thinking back, it's strange. I can't really remember how long she was there. It's almost like my brain's blocking it out. Um, And I was pretty young. Right. And it was two weeks before I started high school. So as soon as high school started, my whole world was trying to be normal, trying to surround myself with this new thing of high school and trying to get good grades. And, you know, that's a time in your life as an adolescent that you're trying to become an adult and be responsible and be social. So it was a lot for me to handle. That turned out to be a constructive thing. I got all A's. I was able to get mentorship from one or two professors who really understood what was going on at home. Not a lot of people knew. Were you responsible at that point for taking care of your mom in any capacity or were you able to see her? Yeah. You know, I became an adult at 12 years old. So I had to help with the cooking, the cleaning, the laundry. My mom was working for my dad at the time. She was like the bookkeeper for my dad's dental office. So all of a sudden he needed help with that. So it was pretty crazy. My goodness. And so that obviously shaped at a very young age, the entire trajectory of your life. So did you know in that moment that you wanted to go down this path of occupational therapy, or you just knew that you wanted to help your own mother and maybe others that were in the same same space. So funny thing, I, from a young age, knew I wanted to be in healthcare. I didn't know exactly what in healthcare. Actually, before high school even started, I had started the process for enrolling in a two-year health occupations like block course. I want to say it was the first time they did this program at my high school, but they had freshmen and sophomores apply to be in this two-year class. And you were in like a cohort and you took college level anatomy, physiology, and sports medicine as a freshman and sophomore. So I was already all along that pathway of being in healthcare and this solidified it, right? Because I got exposed to all the therapies, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, It wasn't even then that I realized I wanted to be an OT. It's just that that became engraved in my brain that, yes, healthcare is a great path and it helps a lot of people just like it helped my mom. Definitely. Was there a certain vision of, quote unquote, success that you had at the time or was it always simply about helping people? I feel like I wanted to be a physician. I was like, well, is that the gold standard of I get to know a little bit about everything? Because the human body is so incredibly complex and the human mind. So I thought, well, as a physician, I know a little bit about every human system. And that's what was intriguing to me because the body is a system. Not one thing operates alone. But later on, when I was in college getting ready, so my undergrad, finishing up my undergrad, I actually started with a degree in psychology. 
because it was switching from the body to the mind because the mind is so powerful and affects the body. And again, so intrigued by it. But after my freshman year, I thought, well, but what are my career options as a psychologist? And But still the human body fascinates me. So I changed back to biology with an emphasis in becoming a physician. So it was pre-med, pre-med courses. But then when I was in my senior year of college, when I should be applying for med school, something didn't feel right. I felt like, wow, okay, so physicians, what is their actual role in collaboration with each patient? And that's where I felt this breakdown of a mismatch of what I wanted, which was being very much collaborative with the clients and patients and working alongside them on their healthcare journey and not just seeing them for 10 minutes in an office, prescribing them something and saying, well, see you in a year. You know, that just was not exciting to me. So I knew how expensive medical school was and I didn't want to make the mistake of enrolling and getting into $400,000 worth of debt or whatever, and then realizing, oh, this is not really, yeah. (laughs) That's not it. (laughs) Nope. Wow. What did I just get myself into? So I ended up not applying to med school. I researched what else was out there. And so I actually toured a local naturopathic school that was just about to open, just about to open, or they had had one or two cohorts go through it, but it was in San Diego area and naturopathic medicine sounded more holistic and collaborative to me. So I looked into that, but then back in that time, they still didn't have as many rights as, you know, an MD or So I thought, maybe the timing isn't right for this career for me. And so I didn't apply to anything. I ended up, (laughs) I said, scratch that. Right. This is a left turn, but we're going to take it. Sure. And I ended up working in cancer research using my biology degree. Because in my senior year of college, I worked at the Salk Institute in their plant biology lab. And so I had a knowledge of lab techniques and a great resume for it. So I got hired by a local cancer research facility in San Diego. And that was fascinating to me, thinking I could contribute to science and medical care. But it was so far removed from the end patient. You're so tuned out. You're working with cells. And you're looking through a microscope and you're doing the lab stuff and the Petri dishes and this and that. And I thought, well, this is kind of boring. (laughs) So I had no human interaction. You know, there was only a couple other people in the lab and it was this giant lab and it was really cool stuff, but nope, not for me as a career. Uh, So I, at the same time as working at the lab, I was working as a waitress and bartender at a golf course. I wasn't just aimlessly with no end goal in mind working at a golf course and bartending, right? There's strategy there. There's strategy, right? So you <laughs> you meet all kinds of people. I started asking people, what do you do for a career and do you enjoy it? And one of the golfers was a respiratory therapist at a local hospital and his wife happened to be an occupational therapist. And so I thought, ooh, okay. And my brother married an occupational therapy assistant. And I thought, oh, yeah, OT. My mom went through OT. So I spent more time researching it. And I said, ooh, I like this a lot. And looking back, I know a couple of times you mentioned this 
intuition, inner voice, something that was like, "Mm, don't do that. Mm, Don't do that. What do you think that was? And or how did you know to listen to that? For the school, for not applying to medical school, it was this feeling that there's no way I can rationalize getting into so much debt that you can't just come back out of in a couple of years. Like there's just no way back from that. And how can you apply to get student loans once and then try again when you still owe this other, like it just, for me, it was very logical in addition to that gut feeling. And I realized that there's so many people who take a year off of college before going to grad school. So many people. So to me, it felt normalized. I felt like I had a goal and a plan that I wasn't going to, you know, be done with school forever. And so I set, you know, realistic goals and expectations of I'm going to take a year or so. I'm going to figure it out. I'm not going to be stagnant, but I'm also going to save up money. So I will work two or three jobs, you know, whatever it takes to kind of stay busy, but stay productive. And yeah, so that was that feeling. It was a gut feeling in addition to a lot of logical reasons. Yeah. Okay. And so you spent some time as an occupational therapist. And I don't know if you're still an active occupational therapist or not. So I don't practice clinically anymore. No, uh-huh. but I will always keep my license. Of course. And you can take all of that knowledge and apply it in, in other ways, I'm sure. Was there a specific moment that you knew that access tracks needed to be created? What set you on that, that path? Yeah. So this takes me to my second year in grad school. And there was a class that we all had to take as OTs called assistive technologies. And To give a background, assistive tech is anything that helps a person be more independent or successful in completing a task. Simple as that. So it could be your hearing aids. It could be an app on your phone that makes the print larger to read. It can be your wheelchair. So assistive tech can be software. It can be hardware. So all sorts of things. So in that class, we just had a project. We get to use our creativity and just create something to help people with disabilities. Like that's it. There was no, you have to do this or you have to do that. I enjoy being creative. And when you're in grad school, you don't get a lot of opportunities to be creative. I feel like, because you're just so buried in the books and all of that. But so I really wanted to make this worthwhile. And our professor in that class was a surfer. And she did have a shout out when the project started. She said, can any of the student groups figure out a way to help adaptive surfers. So surfers who use wheelchairs be able to cross the sand at the beach. And my classmate and I, who had worked on other group projects together, we both were like, yeah, let's try this. We went to Home Depot four times in one day and (laughs) we're just like, okay, so what are the materials that we can use to create traction for a mobility device so that it doesn't sink into the sand? That was kind of difficult. So that's why we had to keep going back. What I ended up finding was they had four foot wide rolls of plastic chicken mesh, like chicken wire, but it's mesh instead of wire. And it comes in a roll and I used aluminum rain gutter covers. So they're rectangles that are six inches wide and three feet in length. And we zip tied two aluminum rain gutter covers in the specific width of a wheelchair to this chicken mesh to create a sort of track 
with which would provide the traction for the chairs. And we created a 10 foot section of this and we took it to the beach to test out with a wheelchair. We were sitting in the wheelchair and rolling over the sand with this Frankenstein of a product, (laughs) but it worked. Got to start somewhere. Yeah. So we, that was the first step is just seeing that it worked just between us. And then of course we have to see if it works with adaptive surfers. You can't just stop there. So we volunteered at an adaptive surfing. Well, it was the Western Surfing Association is a, you know, typical surfing competition with has different categories based on age and surfboard style or whatever, but they have an adaptive heat at their competition. So they're becoming inclusive and they have been for years. So this was 2016. We went to a competition in San Diego and there were five adaptive surfers and they all tried it and it worked. We had two 10 foot sections at that time and we would have two surfers roll out onto this 10 foot long track. And then we would take what was behind them and put it in front. So that it was like leapfrogging down further down the beach. It worked and the surfers we could tell that they really felt like excited about this product and what it does for them. And what was the alternative at that time? Well, either somebody carries them like a child and they're grown men or women or one gentleman. So he was a surfer for years and years and he's got to be in his fifties at the time. And he broke his back surfing in Mexico. That's how he got his spinal cord injury. And he's still a surfer. I mean, that's his identity. He loves the sport. He said, oh, nonchalantly, as we're like moving the mats along, he goes, yeah, this is the first time I've been on the sand in my wheelchair in 10 years. Wow. So what do you normally do? Yeah, yeah, I drag my body across the sand with my surfboard next to me to get to the water. Imagine one day you're driving, something happens, you have an accident, spinal cord injury. You're told by the medical world, oh, you'll never walk again. So you probably can't go surfing. You probably can't drive. You uh, you know, all these things can't, can't, can't. Right. But here's the thing. It's what 2022 now. Why do all of those things have to be taken away? Right. There's ways that we can adapt and modify and things that we can create to allow for any and all of it. People who a lot of times have had a traumatic injury, they basically have an anniversary of their accident. And it's like, okay, it's my alive day anniversary because I survived that day. They can appreciate who they were before and then who they are now or who they are becoming and how they can get there. If there's still work that they would like to do to be able to accomplish things. That day when we heard those stories from people and felt how they felt with using that Frankenstein of a prototype, is no longer a school project and that we have to take this to make it into a manufactured version that we can create a business to help millions of people around the world have better access to the outdoors, period. Between the experience you had with your mom and now all of these new surfers that are coming into your life, them along with presumably all of these other people that you're helping, is that the motivation to keep going? Or is there other motivation that really pushes you? Because obviously running a business is incredibly difficult. Running a business while paying off student loans is even more difficult. 
in those moments when things aren't working and you're going to Home Depot or Lowe's 12, 15, 25 times a day, not just four, and you're working on these prototypes, what was that motivation that assisted you to keep going? So back when I was still a student and working on prototypes, the motivation was the fact that as an occupational therapist, I can help maybe 10 clients a day in my career, like day to day, right? But as an entrepreneur in assistive technology, I have the ability to help millions of people and not just in my local community where I can work with people face to face, right? But like literally people around the world in countries where we don't even speak the same language, don't have the same culture, but literally everywhere has outdoor terrain, like sand, grass, gravel, snow, mulch, everywhere has people with disabilities. It's the largest minority in the world. About 25% of the population has some form of disability. We all know somebody who has a disability. That whole package deal was, I can help more people doing this than I can as a, a clinical occupational therapist. That's what excited me. That's incredible. And you had a bit of exposure, presumably, to entrepreneurship in some capacity because of your dad's business? Or did he kind of was that not necessarily spoken about? It was just the thing. As a entrepreneur, right, there's the, the kinds where you purchase a business that was already started, right? And you take over and you can change things. And then there's the kind where you have to start something from the ground up. So in a lot of ways, my dad could not help me. <laughs> he was like, I don't really know how to help you with that whole thing, with inventing a new product and starting something from scratch. But what I did learn was I used to work for my dad, especially over the summers, like around the office, I would take deposits to the bank. I would help with charts and things like, so I did stuff around the office. And so from idea to the actual first product that you were able to sell, how long did that take? So it was... October 1st, 2016, when we tested that prototype in Ocean Beach with Adaptive Surfers. And we launched the company and started selling the product February of 2018. Access Tracks as a company, we stand for empowering people of all physical abilities to easily access the outdoors and recreation. And we do that through our patented portable access mats that provide a firm and stable surface for people to traverse uneven terrain that's normally a barrier. So that terrain may be sand at the beach, it may be gravel at a campsite, and it may be grass in somebody's backyard for their garden. It can also be snow. Uh, so this is what we try to do is break down those barriers to the outdoors and make it more accessible and inclusive for all. Oh, wow. And since then, you've been in several programs for entrepreneurship. We can totally touch on just that experience in general, but more specifically, I know you've been in, in several programs that were designed for women in business and entrepreneurship. Do you have any advice for fellow women or folks who identify as women in business? As a female in assistive tech or STEM, you are a minority. You just have to accept that, but know that it's getting better. Representation starts with you. If you are able to just look at it from the aspect of, hey, I have knowledge and unique experiences that I can bring to the table that a man cannot. It's the same thing as 
a person with a disability, they have a unique perspective and knowledge that they bring to the table. Same as the LGBTQ plus community, they have perspectives. So it's like everybody has a unique perspective and experience knowledge that can solve problems. The white cis older male cannot solve everybody's problems, period. Are you sure? Are you sure? Because it really seems. I know we've been told otherwise, I feel like for many decades, but that's going to be a a big no. So it's like, okay, so we have these experiences and the abilities. We just have to fight a little bit harder to get those into the world. So being feisty and, uh, persevering and sometimes being bold, like, Hey, that's what it takes. So no shame in that. The thing that kind of catalyzed where I am today with my success is that back in 2019, well, actually it was like November, December of 2018. I got messaged through Facebook, a person in Del Mar, California, who happened to have a disability, who found access tracks, our Facebook page. And they messaged the Access Tracks Facebook page. And they said, hey, love what you're doing, something, something. But he ended up telling me that there was a new business accelerator for people in San Diego only. And it was specifically for minorities and people of low to moderate income status. And I was like, ooh, okay. So this looks like it could be for me. So I applied and I got selected to be interviewed. Then I got selected to be in the inaugural cohort. So 13 businesses were selected in San Diego. And this was the catalyst because it opened my eyes to the fact that there's a whole world of a startup community, not only in San Diego, but just really around the world, honestly, it's growing. And it opened my eyes to a lot of the supports for minorities, women-owned businesses, people of low to moderate income status. So that was huge. So for me, I would say a really big point of advice is to seek out These types of programs, I guarantee you, there's at least a national one, if not one by state or city or county that you can get connected with and let that be your first experience and really just soak it up, like actually participate, show up to the workshops, network with people, connect with your fellow business owners, connect with the mentors and stay connected with the mentors and your peers because you never know what a connection from five years ago could do for you tomorrow. Have a way to keep in touch with people. Don't just save their business card or don't just throw away their business card, rather. You know, stay connected. And that is 1000% one of the biggest things that happened to me is that I took control of that situation and said, I'm going to make the best of this. What is the worst piece of advice that you've ever gotten? And then to end it on a good note, what's the best piece of advice? you've ever gotten? The worst piece of advice. So this one is interesting. You know, advice is subjective, right? So for me in my journey, the worst piece of advice was to get an investor. And it's simply because, and I'll just outline just a few points of context. So this is very early on in my business, like maybe only a year in, and my business is not worth anything. You have to give away a lot of equity in order to get said investor interest because you're early on. And my business, the way that it is, it's not hockey stick unicorn growth. So 
that's not a great fit for having investors. That's just it. Getting an investor is not for every business and it's not for every founder. And it's not the gold standard. That's one thing I really want to stress. I feel like the startup world is so heavily focused, one, on tech, software, because it is inherently better for hockey stick growth and getting investors because it's software. Scaling software is much easier than scaling hardware or product. Okay. And also the startup world is just so infatuated with VCs and getting investors and woohoo, I went from hundred thousand dollars in the bank to 5 million. No, it's not, does not happen overnight. And it is not for everybody. You know, what is the gold standard in my opinion? sales. I don't care if you have 20 investors or no investors and you bootstrapped your business. Traction and sales is the gold standard. You can grow your business without other people riding on your coattails. Can you tell that I'm a little bitter? Um, (laughs) Hey, we're speaking the same language here. I just, so I had an investor for a short period of time and I have like PTSD from it, like investor PTSD. Okay. So We will have officially a separate podcast about (laughs) investor PTSD because that is something that we both share. Yeah. I mean, I will say that at the time, it seemed like the right decision. And I won't say that it was a total mistake. I will say that I learned a lot from it and I have grown from it. The best piece of advice that I ever received, this is very specific, but it is as a startup founder, right? To borrow money when you don't need it so that you have it when you do. (laughs) Learn this the hard way. So I started my business when I was still working full-time as a clinical therapist, making full-time salary job with benefits. Okay. That would have been a great time to apply for startup funding from a traditional bank. Traditional banks, when they see that you have zero outside income, or that you're only working part-time and that your spouse or your significant other is a student with no income, they don't like you. (laughs) So by the time you need emergency funds, then you're cornered back against the wall and you make decisions like getting an investor when maybe it wasn't the best course of action in the grand scheme of things, but it was the best course of action as far as saving the business. There is one other piece of advice that I think is equally as important that if I would have heard when the spark of an idea of this business was a twilight in my eye, I would have been so thankful and it would have avoided a lot of issues. And this piece of advice is this. You do not have to, if you have a co-founder or co-founders, you do not have to have the equity given to everybody up front in full. You can say in a written agreement as part of your operating agreement, the percentage of equity that these founders get will vest over time based on performance. If a co-founder fails to perform their expected agreed upon duties over a given amount of time, they should not earn that equity, period. So I think that's very, very important for everybody to understand and to think about as they're starting a company, not six years later when they run into issues. 
thank you for sharing your stories and your worst and best advice. Super appreciate it. And thank you for making the time to be here. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Cost of the Status Quo and learning the wisdom, stories, and ideas that will have you feeling inspired and ready to take on the world. If you've enjoyed this, please remember to share, rate, and review. It means the world to me and the team putting it all together. If you're looking for more information, you can find us at costofthestatusquo.com or on Instagram at costofthestatusquo. If you've got any questions or curiosity about me, you can find me at lindsaylearner.com. That's L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-L-E-R-N-E-R.com or on Instagram at lindsaylearner. Thanks again for listening. Hope you have an awesome day.